really glad you decided to be part of the online worship <coughs> celebration. Well, we're going to have some fun over the next five weeks. Five women are mentioned or named in the, the genealogy recorded by Matthew, Jesus' genealogy. Uh, five women. Each one has a unique story and uh, made a special contribution to his family tree. And uh, I want us to discover, I want to invite you to discover how our stories and their stories connect as we're preparing for Jesus' coming. Today, we're going to start Matthew chapter 1. Matthew just kicks it right off. Let's just talk about who this guy is. It's Matthew's motto. Um, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, or the son of David, the son of Abraham. <coughs> Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So what's Tamar's story? What wonderful things did she do to get her name in Jesus' family tree? If you don't know Tamar's story, hold on to your hats. This, this is going to blow your mind. Tamar's story is found back in Genesis chapter 38, verses 36 to 30. Those of you who want to follow and make sure I didn't make this stuff up, please feel free to look there. Uh, because this is, well, this is one of those times where fact is, we're, uh, crazier than fiction. I'm going to summarize the backstory because we're jumping into Genesis chapter 38. So let me summarize the backstory for us real quick. I'm not going to do a 38 chapters worth, but here comes here comes the fast summary of the first part of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created humankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female. He created them. God placed them, humankind, in a pleasant place and gave them one command. You are free to eat from all the trees here in this garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from that tree, you will surely die. In case you don't know, the rest of the story goes like this. Our first parents disobeyed God's command and ate us all out of the house and home. Literally. And it's out of house and home. And everything we see that's wrong with this world started at that moment. And has only gotten worse in many ways. Death and disease, division and dissension, natural disasters and pandemics, violence and crime, wars and rumors of wars. But God loved us so much that he made our predicament his problem to solve. The Lord promised a childless couple in their 80s that they would have a son. Now, just quickly do the math there, folks. 
if you've not had children by the time you're in the, your 80s, the odds are non-existent for you to have children naturally. This couple's names were Abraham and Sarah. At least they were after God got done with them. Their son's name was Isaac, and he was born when they were in their 90s. Happy birthday. Whoa. Isaac's chosen son was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Judah was the third born son. Judah's, Judah's firstborn son. See, we're, we're starting to catch into Ma uh, Matthew's genealogy here. Judah's firstborn son's name was Ur. He married Tamar, but he died before they had a child. Specifically a son. That was he needed a male heir. Uh, this was a problem because as the firstborn son of Judah, his responsibility is to produce an heir to care for Judah's future extended family. The firstborn son's responsibility was to take care of the family when dad was passed away. And his second responsibility is to produce a son who will take his place when he passes away. And when he dies without doing so, it causes general anxiety and angst and what are we going to do? Uh, they had a plan. There's, there's a plan A, firstborn son takes dad's place, his firstborn son takes his place, and everything goes smoothly. That's plan A. There's a plan B. Plan B goes like this. It tells us in Genesis chapter 38, when Aaron died, uh, Judah said to his secondborn son, Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Plan B is the nextborn, secondborn son, takes the firstborn son's place as husband to his wife, and produces a son who will be the firstborn son. That's plan B. But Ona knew that the child would not be his, so he did what he could to prevent Tamar from getting pregnant. So he died. And there was still no baby boy to care, carry on Er's <coughs> name and the family responsibility. So Judah does some quick figuring. Firstborn son marries her and dies. Secondborn son marries her and dies. I have one son <laughs> left. He calls his daughter-in-law Tamar and says, I want you to go home to dad and live with, as a widow in your father's household until my youngest son, Shayla, grows up because he thought he may die too just like his brothers there's something about this woman that seems to be deadly to my sons so Tamar went to live with her father's household until the youngest son grew up old, became old enough to become her husband so that she could have a son for her first 
they refer her husband, the firstborn son, so that the families, you know, so, you know, help your following. But basically, Tamar is out of sight, out of mind, which is exactly where her father-in-law Judah wanted her to be. She's away from his last son. A long time later, Judah's wife died, and his third son, Shelah, has grown up, but he's forgotten, conveniently forgotten about Tamar, and he did not bring her back to be Shelah's wife, to have a son for his firstborn. I don't know what he's planning to do, but he's developing his own plan, see. Judah went on an out-of-town business trip. Tamar heard about his trip. Somebody told her, and she disguised herself as a prostitute. Judah comes to the town where he is going to visit and sees her, does not recognize her because she's disguised with a veil and doesn't realize it's Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and he makes a deal with her so that he can sleep with her. And since he doesn't have what he was going to give her with him, he gives her his seal and cord and staff as security. Just so you understand, the seal was a, and cord was something he wore around his neck, and it was the way he signed contracts. They did their contracts in clay, and they would roll this on the, this little seal, the cylinder, on the clay, the soft clay, and then it would be baked, not quite cast in stone, carved in stone, but baked in brick. And that was the contract and his signature. So he gave her his way of signing contracts and his walking stick as a pledge that he would make sure she was paid the next day. They slept together. She became pregnant. She went home to her father's house, put back on her widow's clothes, and acted like nothing had ever happened. Judah sent a friend to pay her and to get his stuff back. He arrived at the place where Jacob or Judah had said that he uh, had met her, and she wasn't there. And he asked around discreetly. And everybody said, there's never been a prostitute here. We don't know what you're talking about. This, this is a respectable town. We don't have prostitutes. <laughs> now, about this time, a phrase, my, or a line that my mother said to me frequently, I think it's in the Bible somewhere. Um, pretty sure. If, if it's not, it's a Bible principle. Be sure your sins will find you out. About three months later, it tells us in Genesis chapter 38, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. She, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns thee, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. 
Judah recognized them as his own and said, Oh, well, she's more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son's Sheba. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. One was named Perez, and the other was named Zerah. And one of them became a great, 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 great grandfather to Jesus. I don't know how many greats are in there. I just. She became a grandmother. Now I just want to hold on a minute, wait. How can Tamar be more righteous than Judah? Let's look at this story. She acted as a prostitute, and he paid to sleep with her. And it seems to me they both broke the rules. One of them, it's like six of one and half a dozen of another, isn't it? They're, they're, they're both as wrong as the other. I mean, it takes two to tango. So how can Judah say she is more righteous than I? So that got me to thinking, what is righteous? What is the meaning of the word righteous? Is it different? It, 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 perhaps it's not what I think it is. So, this is what I found out. In the Old Testament, particularly, but I think it's true in the New Testament as well, righteousness is primarily a relational concept. It's being in a right relationship. And that results in behavior that's appropriate for that right relationship. In other words, a right relationship creates right actions. So Judah called Tamar's act righteous because it was proper into her relationship with her husband. Her responsibility was to have a son for her so that he would have a descendant. That was her responsibility as his wife. He died before they could. She was then Onan's wife in order to have a son for her. And Onan died before they could, and she couldn't get with the third son because Judah wouldn't do it. So she decided to get things done on her own, and she slept with her father-in-law. She did what she had to do to fulfill her responsibility to her husband. And so Judah was able to say, she's more righteous than I am. I didn't fulfill my responsibility as a father to my son. She fulfilled her responsibility to her husband 
See, the central concept of righteousness in the Old Testament, when we go outside of the family, then becomes the relationship between God and humanity. The concept of the covenant defines that basic relationship between God and humanity. The Lord chose to establish a relationship with Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel, the people of Israel. It was a pure act of grace on God's part. God picked them. Not because they had done something wonderful and great, and not because they were sinless, obviously. He chose them because he chose them. He loved them. This covenant relationship is more basic than the law. The relationship, and in this law, this relationship of grace, God then gave the law to his people to give them a guide on how to live with him. This goes back to why Jesus said in his life, when they asked what is the greatest commandment, he declared, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Why? Because righteousness, holiness, the whole, all of that is based on relationships first. The rules are only commentary and application. Relationships, all relations, this shouldn't really surprise us. We know this instinctively, I think, un unconsciously we know this. Whenever we enter a relationship, it alters our actions. Or the relationship just disintegrates. If a young, so, uh, if a young person enters one of the armed forces, they promise to obey the orders they receive. If they don't obey those orders, it gets unpleasant fast. When a couple commits to live together after God's ordinance in the holy state of matrimony, they start a relationship that should shape the rest of their lives. In sickness and in health and riches you know, and the whole, whole, whole nine yards. No matter what happens, no matter what may come, we're in this together is their commitment to each other. Now, a little more personal uh, example, the friends and acquaintances who know me well enough to know that I'm allergic to fish and seafood won't invite me out to eat fish. I hope. If they do, I'm going to ask them why they want to get rid of me. Now, I have been invited. I was, I was invited, was, went to someone's home, first time I'd ever been there. First, we were just meeting, and they served a tuna casserole. It was her favorite. It was this, this, lady, this lady, that was her, that was, I don't know how, you know, this, okay. But tuna, this tuna casserole thing was like 
her main dish. It was like what she was known for kind of thing. And I said, oh man, I'm really sorry. Uh, I didn't think to mention to you that I'm allergic to fish. Oh, this is, by the way, this is down south. So all they had to offer me was peanut butter, a peanut butter sandwich, but it, it, it had to be a fancy down south peanut butter sandwich. Those of you, those of you who are watching from down south, I'm a Yankee, please forgive me. Uh, it was, they, she really wanted me to try a peanut butter banana and mayonnaise sandwich. <laughs> Just plain, keep it simple, peanut butter and bread, that's really all I need. Thank you. Elvis Presley loved it, I don't care. I can't sing like Elvis and I don't eat like Elvis. <laughs> Right? Relationships. When we get a new job, it change. if the job starts at 9, we don't go, uh, hey, I think I'd rather start at 2 in the afternoon if you don't mind. I'm really not a morning person. Well, you can say that. But your job isn't going to last very long. Relationships. Every relationship you enter will alter your behavior. It's just the way it is. Here's a sermon in a sentence. Righteousness is mainly about relationships, not rules. Mainly about relationships, not rules. Relationships precede rules or changes in behavior. Now that's interesting because I looked up the word righteous. In the dictionary, righteousness. I looked up the dictionary defines righteousness as the actions described by or coming from accepted standards of morality or justice. In other words, the word righteousness in our language means to follow a set of laws or rules. In our language, righteousness is all about rules and regulations. No mention of relationships. And this is why we get confused. This point of view makes us think that we need to live according, and everybody else needs to live according to a certain standard of morality, of morality to belong to God's kingdom family. But in God's kingdom family, relationships precede rules. Right relationships create righteous actions. So we get, we become part of God's kingdom family, and as we become part of the family, he begins to influence us to change our behavior. Okay, I promise one of the things we're going to do is see how our stories and, and these ladies' stories connect. And so how does our story how do our stories and Tamar's story connect as we prepare for Jesus' coming? Tamar's story reveals that righteousness is primarily a relational concept. It is being in the right relationship with Jesus. And it's about the right relationship causing us to have proper behavior for that relationship. 
And for us, our experiences of God's grace and love proves Jesus values relationships more than rules. Look at what he was constantly getting in trouble with, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. He was constantly getting in trouble for valuing people and relationships with people over rules. How dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath? That's against the rules. And Jesus just would look at them and go, if your donkey was in the ditch, he didn't say it with a southern accent, but if he, he might have. He was from Nazareth, who knows? If your donkey was in a ditch, wouldn't you pull it out on the Sabbath? Well, what's wrong with healing a son or daughter of Abraham? It's against the rules. Oh, but pulling your donkey out of a ditch isn't. Well, that's dumb. Our experiences of God's grace and love prove that Jesus values relationships more than rules. If he, wanted, if, he wanted, if he valued rules more than relationships, Genesis chapter 3 would never have been written. We would have all, Adam and Eve would have dropped dead. And that would have been the end of this creation and he would have started over with something else. But because he loved us and wanted relationships with all of us, our predicament became his problem to solve. We need a shift in our thinking because we've been taught all this time, we've been taught that righteousness is about following a set of standards and rules and regulations. We need a shift in our thinking so that we share Jesus' ideals and Jesus' values. So when we value relationships more than rules, it's going to transform the way we talk to each other inside God's kingdom and family. We're going to move from insisting on conforming to a set of rules that we think everybody ought to obey toward accepting and building relationships with people and trusting the Holy Spirit to conform us to the rules that... Oh, wait a minute. We're not going to be conformed to rules. We're going to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. It's a whole different ball of wax. We're called not to a list of rules. We're called to imitate Jesus. To walk in love like Jesus. I have to rewrite that whole paragraph. Oh well. Oh, when we value relationships more than rules, it's going to transform the way we talk to those who aren't following Jesus yet. We're going to shift away from struggling to convince them that they're sinners to simply showing them the kind of unconditional love that God has given us. And that they were created to experience and then, frankly, they, whether they realize it or not, they're starving to know and experience. <clears throat> now, I know some of us were scared to death in, 
Okay. I don't frequently say things like this, but it's true. Some of us were raised in situations where we literally had the hell scared out of us. If you don't come down to this altar right now, you will probably walk out of here, get hit by a bus, and go straight to the place of eternal punishment. Can God use that kind of stuff? God, God can use anything. God used a donkey for Pete's sake. Well, actually, for Balaam's sake. That's in the Old Testament in, in the book of Gen uh, no, not Genesis, the book of Exodus. Uh, you want to know more about that story? That's the story that helps me as a preacher. If God can use a donkey, he can use me. I think I'm a little bit better than a donkey. Okay? So it's if we if we learn to value relationships with people who aren't in the kingdom yet more than rules and regulations, then we're going to swing away from trying to convince them how bad they are to simply loving them the way Jesus loves them. And they experience that love, the love of Jesus, they're going to be drawn to him. When we value relationships more than rules, it's going to transform the way we, we relate to and talk to ourselves individually. We're going to swing away from this sense of feeling like we have to strive to obey the rules towards celebrating God's grace. He loves me. One of the things I, I this is, this, okay, this is just, if you want to know one of my idiosyncrasies, that, Okay, one of the weird things about me, that's a big fancy word for just saying weird things about me. I'm a pastor who likes to read what atheists think and their questions. And one of the, one of the questions that a lot of atheists have is why are Christians so egotistical and prideful to think that if there really is an all-powerful God that he would love us? And I have an answer. And it's, I have the foggiest idea. Why would he? We're the biggest bunch of losers you could ever imagine. Now some of you are freaking out. I, probably not in this room, but online. Some of you are. I don't want to. People in the room can throw books at me, so i got to be careful. Uh, right? Look at what we're doing. We kill each other. We hate each other. We hate ourselves. And he loves us. Sometimes we look in the mirror, we can't even love ourselves. And he goes, man, you're awesome. We go, is your mirror fogged up? I can't tell you why he loves us, but this much I know. Because I've experienced it, he does. He 
does. And by the way, I frankly can't explain why my wife loves me either. But she does. By the way, that brings me to this last thing, my last point here. We, we value relationships more than rules. When we value relationships more than rules, it will transform the way we respond to God. We will change from striving to earn his approval toward resting and trusting in his love. To knowing there is not a thing I can do to make him love me more. There's not a thing I could ever do to make him love me less. Not that I ever want to try to make him love me less. But I just have that sense of comfort and security. He loves me. And that's it. Now, so, no matter where you might be in your spiritual journey, whether you're actively seeking Jesus or you're considering saying yes uh, to following him, or if you're living even now in God's kingdom family, I want you to remember this principle from Tamar's story. In God's kingdom family, relationships precede rule-keeping. Right relationships create right actions. It's never, ever the other way around. Right actions never create a right relationship with God. No matter how church people may speak or act, right relationships create right righteous actions. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Set us free from our obsession with rule keeping. Flood our lives with your transforming grace and love. Speak words of life to us and through us. Help us to honor Jesus, to imitate him and to become more like him in all that we do. Because we love him. Amen. You and I have a message to proclaim to everyone who will listen. And the founder of our branch of the Christian family tree, John Wesley said, and especially to those who don't want to listen, 
That message goes something like this. Jesus has come. Jesus is here. Jesus is coming. Let's prepare to meet him. You are sent. Go with Jesus in the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.